We ask that tonight that you would just help us just continue to make um, application as we go through these chapters. And again, it's a portion of Scripture that many Christians, unfortunately, believe should be ignored or uh, doesn't have any relevance for us, and it does. This is a part of of your word. And um, I'm reminded when Paul the Apostle was speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. And we want to take in this counsel that you give to us. We know that we're not under the law, but we know that there are principles and truths here for us to gain from and glean from. And so, Lord, we ask that our ears would be open and our hearts soft before you right now, that we would be teachable. And, Lord, we can come in on a Wednesday night, and uh, we've had a long day, many of us. We've been up since early, working all day. Perhaps some of us even haven't had a chance to even have dinner yet. And I pray that for the next 45 minutes or so that you would help us just glean from your word that we would know you and again your faithfulness and your goodness and Lord that we can apply it in our lives so we can live lives that are wise according to after you. And so Father again bless this time in Jesus name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 16 observe the month of Abid and keep the Passover to the Lord your God for in the month of Abid the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore you shall sacrifice a Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. And so remember that back in Exodus chapter 12, when the children of Israel were still in Egypt, that it was the plagues that were coming down upon the Egyptians, and the last plague was the death of the firstborn. And it was at that time that the Lord came to the children of Israel and said, that in the tenth day of the month of Abid, uh, that you are to select a lamb without spot or blemish. And then on the fourteenth day, that you are to sacrifice that lamb. You are to take the blood of that lamb. You are to apply it on the doorposts and the lintels of your homes. And as they did that, it would make the form of a cross. And of course, as the death angel would come over, it would pass over those homes, thus the name Passover, and they would not experience the death of the firstborn. It was at that time, really, there was the birth of a nation. They had been uh, determined to be a nation and promised to be a nation through the covenant that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they first came into Egypt, 400 years previous to that night, we know that there was only 75 individuals, Jacob and his sons and his son's sons. And so they would be in in Egypt for 400 years, and they would be in bondage and slavery. So the Lord freeing them and bringing them to the land that he had swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so at that time, they would apply the blood, and that was Passover. And of course, we looked at that, and it would be the Passover that they were told to celebrate year after year. This is a perpetual covenant that I've made with you. Uh, This is a feast that the Lord desired for them to celebrate year after year in the month of Abid. Now, as the Passover was given to them, clear back 40 years previous, they're in Exodus, and then they would have to leave in haste, and we're going to see that's going to be uh, not only uh, the Passover was instituted, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But here it is 40 years later, Moses addressing this new generation of the children of Israel. Now remember, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so they're ready physically, but spiritually they're not. So Moses is given his last address to the children of Israel here. 
So the book of Deuteronomy takes place about 30 days where Moses is giving these series of sermons where he is reminding them of the covenant that God had made with their fathers there at Mount Sinai. He is reminding them of the law. Uh, He is reminding them of the ceremonial and civic laws that the Lord has given to them because now they're going to be a people, three and a half million, that is going to go in and take the land that God had promised to give them. They're going to, to, um, to conquer the land, and, um, and they're going to have their allotments. So now he is getting them ready for that. And so he says, when you go into the promised land and you are established there, when you celebrate Passover, you're going to bring the lambs to the prescribed place that I choose and the, the, where I put my name. And, of course, he's been telling them that when you guys have this place of worship, it's not just to be anywhere. Of course, in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle. It was right there in the middle of the camp, and the children of Israel camped around them. We saw how that was specifically in the book of Numbers. But as they now are going to go into the promised land, they're going to be spread out everywhere, aren't they? And they're each going to have their allotment. And so the Lord is saying, listen, I don't want you to just go up in the hills and worship anywhere. I don't want you to be like the Canaanites that had the groves and, and all of this and their pagan worship. There's going to be a prescribed place of worship. And, of course, that would be Jerusalem where the temple was. And then eventually they would bring their animals there to be sacrificed for the Passover. And that didn't happen for a while. But we know in Jesus' day, of course, Jesus, that he is our Passover lamb. And we know from the Gospels that in those last days he was there in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover and there Jesus uh, would be sacrificed as he became our Passover, as Paul tells the Corinthian church, as he died for the sins of the world. And as we apply the blood in our lives, that is, as we come in faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we go from death to life. We are promised eternal life that God has for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the powerful, powerful picture of the Passover and fulfillment of the Passover, and we've discussed that. So the Passover here, we're going to see regulations concerning the Passover, but first, verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread. With it seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. With it, that is, the bread of affliction. For he came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. And so we see following Passover would be seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was that bread that had no leaven in it. They had to leave, leave in haste. They didn't have time for that leaven to raise the bread up. Um, and so they would have to leave. But the Lord here is saying, for this feast, remembering that you were brought out of Egypt, remembering that you had to leave in haste, that you're to have no leaven in the bread that you eat for a week, and to have it not even in your house, not even in your territories. And so there was to be no leaven uh, that was to be in their homes at all. And of course, we talked about how leaven in the scripture speaks of evil, speaks of sin. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he was addressing the issue of immorality that was in the church. And he says that you guys, what are you doing boasting about this? He says, don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf? And so purge out the leaven. Get rid of the sin out of the church is what you are to do. And so it speaks of sin. And of course, as we've talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
we've talked about how it's important for us that, that we, in our own lives, it is important what it is that we take in. Make sure you're not taking in, that you're not eating of leaven. There's so many things in the world around us that we can take in that will pollute our minds, that will corrupt us, that is not good, that is evil, that is sinful. And so be careful what it is that you're meditating on. And that's one of the lessons that we're seeing and is going and are going to continue to see on this Sunday morning when we're going to see it pick it up at verse 8 of chapter 4 that Paul's going to say meditate on these things these things that are true and noble and and these things that are um, uh, praiseworthy and uh, you're to meditate on these things and so there are eight things that Paul's going to say that we're to meditate on he's already told us in that epistle that we're to have the mind of Christ and I've got to tell you this that it is important what it is that we take into our minds and we are to be wise, and we are to be careful, and it's very easily in our homes. And here in their homes, they weren't to have leaven. So protect your homes against that evil and that corruption that can come into our homes through so many ways. Through computers, through music, through magazines, through the TV, cable, whatever it is. And again, understand I'm not anti this and anti that. But I am telling you that we need to be wise as Christians what it is that we set before our eyes because it does affect us. Why do you think Madison Avenue spends about 100 hours of thought on a 30-second commercial? The reason that they do and they consult psychologists and everybody else and marketers is because for 30 seconds they want to try to get you to think that you need this thing. That you are not happy in life unless you have this thing or you buy this thing or to you run to, you know, McDonald's right away and go get that Big Mac, you know, during the game. And, and me, it's like, yeah, okay. But the thing is, it's, it does affect us what it is that we watch. And there's always this debate in our society, you know, about the, the way movies are now and, and is it just um, the way Hollywood is getting or is it a reflection of our society? Does it affect us really? Yeah, it affects us. Because that's why, again, Madison Avenue spends millions of dollars consulting and making these 30-second commercials to try to affect you. And so it is in the scriptures, for example, in Romans chapter 12, again, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, some people will say, well, that's legalistic. It's not legalistic, it's wisdom. And we need to understand that the Lord desires for us to meditate on those things that we're going to talk about on Sunday. So come on Sunday so you can know what those things are. And meditate on those things. And be careful what it is that you take in. You don't want to be corrupted. There's too many things out there that will do that for us. And then in verse, um, in verse 5, more to the regulations for the Passover. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. In verse 8, six days you shall eat unleavened bread. Seventh day that you shall be a, sac a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. And you shall do no work on it. And then in verses 9 uh, and following, we're going to see uh, the Feast of Weeks reviewed. 
And so you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. And then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And so we see here the feast of weeks review that we've already covered this. Uh, it was called the feast of harvest in Exodus chapter 23, you might recall. It was also called the day of first fruits in Numbers chapter 28. It was called later on Pentecost, the Septuagint, meaning 50 days, 50 days after Passover. So Passover celebrated there in what our months would be late uh, March in, in um, April. And, um, and, and again, the Jews still celebrate Passover today. It is interesting when we talk about Passover. Again, I've reminded you of this. But in many of the years of the children of Israel in their history, the, the Passover was not celebrated. And it's interesting that in Second Kings chapter 23, when it was Josiah, right before the captivity of Judah, uh, in that last revival, that he instituted a Passover and a great feast. And it says in Second Kings chapter 23 that no Passover since the days of the judges have been celebrated like that. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 35, since Samuel the prophet. Now we do know that before Josiah, that Hezekiah, when he was the king of Judah, that he celebrated the Passover as well. But there's no mention of when David was king of him celebrating the Passover. There's no mention of Solomon during his reign. We know that when the nation split after that, that the house of Israel was plunged deep into idol worship. But it wasn't celebrated year after year. So it's kind of interesting to look at that. But as we look at the Passover, then followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 50 days after Passover, it would be called Pentecost. And that was the first fruits, the first uh, harvest that would come in. And, of course, that's when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, as Peter would stand up in Acts chapter 2, and he would preach, and 3,000 got saved, the first fruits coming in. And so verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, in the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And so we know that it was a festive time, it was a celebration. And you know, one of the things that as you look at this in the Feast of Tabernacles, and the other feasts, and you look at the, the wedding of the Jews, they really, when they had these feasts, a lot of times, there's some exceptions, like a Day of Atonement was a sobering day and a day of fasting. But it was a time of celebration. It was a time of rejoicing. It was a time of, of really of thanksgiving for God's provision. And again, that's the mindset and the heart that the Lord desires for us to live in as Christians. And we've seen that very clearly as on Sunday mornings, again, going through the book of Philippians. As we have been given the command that we are to rejoice in the Lord, again I say rejoice, and that we are to be ones that are to be thankful. As we saw and ended at verse uh, um, in the verses there, 6 through 8, actually, of, of the, uh, chapter 4 of Philippians, where Paul says that be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. We are to be ones that are to rejoice in the Lord always and to remind you that we always have a reason to rejoice as a Christian. We may not rejoice in the circumstances that we are in, 
because there are difficult circumstances that we face in our lives, isn't there? And there are hard times, and there's loss, and there's grief, and there's, and there's you, know, you know, difficulties that we go through. But underneath it all, we can have an inner joy because we have the Lord in our lives. And remember that we talked about that it was Jesus that said in Luke chapter 10 that you are to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And Paul writes to us in the book of Philippians that your names are written in the book of life. And that should always cause us to rejoice every single day that we have the promise of heaven. That you and I are forgiven. We have the Lord that lives in our lives and His promises are true for us. So underneath it all, we can have that inner joy. We don't have to be anxious about things, but give it to the Lord through prayer with thanksgiving. And we can be thankful because we're no longer slaves to Egypt. We're free from Egypt. We're free from the world, and we're free from the bondage of sin, and we're free from the slavery of sin in our lives. And we get to walk in that newness of life as just loving the Lord and trusting in Him and looking to Him and abiding in Him. And we can live a life of an inner joy and a heart of thanksgiving. That's the way the Lord desires for us to live. And as we talked about, that as they were making their way through the wilderness and into the promised land, uh, the Lord desires for us to have that life abundantly. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. That is just that life of, of just living in the blessings and the joy and, and, and just the, 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 that just of the Lord and enjoying the Lord in your life. And that takes place as you choose to say, I'm going to rejoice in you, Lord. It's tough right now. It's hard. But Lord, I have a reason to rejoice because I do belong to you. And I have the promise of heaven and I'm forgiven and I'm your child. And I have your promises for me. And I can be thankful because I'm not in bondage to Egypt anymore. And I know that the Lord is at hand. And so... We as a child of God can live in that way. So they were to celebrate. They were to be thankful for the provision of God in their lives. They were to to be remembering how God brought them out of Egypt in these feasts. And that was part of the Feast of Tabernacles that we read in verse 13. As we read that you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from the threshing floor and from your wine press. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger, Uh, and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. And seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in a place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you and all your produce and all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. And so the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated actually in the fall of the year, rejoicing in God's deliverance of the children of Israel and his provision as they came through the wilderness Again, it was a feast that you see in the Gospels that Jesus went to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was on the last day of the great feast that Jesus stood up and he said, If any of you thirst, let him come to me and drink, and vow of his belly will flow torrents of living water. And of course, what they would do is they would come to Jerusalem, they would set up these little booths, these little lean-tudes, and they would, the father, speak to their sons about how it was this generation here that would come through the wilderness. Our fathers came through the wilderness. God provided manna. He provided water in the rock, and he brought us into the promised land. And so it was a festive time. It is interesting that the scripture says that in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ, that the nations are going to come to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And so uh, kind of interesting little side note that you read there in the book of Zechariah, I believe, tells us the last chapter that the nations will come up and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And then it says here in verse 16, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given to you. So these three major feasts, and again, there was... Um, other feasts, there are other times of celebration, there was other observances that they had. Um, there was the Day of Atonement, which was the holiest day of the year. There was the Feast of Trumpets, um, other things that we have looked at. But these three major feasts are reviewed to them once again. It was three times a year that it was God's desire that the males come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And he says here that you shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 17, every man shall give as he is able. Now, it's interesting here that God says when you come, every man is to give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord. And we've looked at the giving that they were to give, the first fruits and of their grains and of the tithes and all of this. As we go to the New Testament, it's interesting that oftentimes people will say, well, we're not under the law of the tithe to give, so they feel like that they don't have to give. You know what? Here's the, the, the mindset that the Lord has for you and I as Christians. I understand we're not under the law, but it's interesting that as I read this, that every man shall give as he is able. It's very, very familiar what Paul has to say as you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He's telling the saints that when you come together on the first day of the week in verse 2, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, in other words, he was taking a collection there in Corinth, his desire, so he can take to the saints in Jerusalem that were having a difficult time. They were having uh, a time of famine and, and difficulty. So he wanted to bring a collection from the Gentile churches there to the brethren down in Jerusalem and, um, and to give to them. So he's telling the Corinthian church, when you meet on the first day of the week, and I want you to note that, because sometimes people will come to me and trying to argue about the Sabbath and all this, that the Christians met on the Sabbath day, and it wasn't until Constantine you know, declared that Christianity was uh, the official religion um, of Rome, and that was a conspiracy and all of this, and that's when the Christians started meeting on Sunday. It says that they were to collect on the first day of the week. Why? Because that's when they went to church. On the first day of the week, that's when they met. So he says, take the collection on the first day of the week. And he goes on to say, and let each one of you lay something aside. Here he says, every man shall give as he is able. In other words, what the Lord's desire for us as the church is, is that we each one give. Sometimes we can think that, you know what, um, I don't need to give. I'm not under the, the, the law of tithing. Well, the Lord desires for us, this is our guidelines, this is our commandments, that we are to give each one as he is able and he is to give freely, he is to give willingly, and he is to give cheerfully, Second Corinthians chapter 9. So I think the tithe is a, a good principle. But you are to give out of a free will, and you are to give cheerfully, and each one is to give. That's God's desire. And I know that talking about giving is hard. We don't talk about it a whole lot here at Calvary Chapel. But I don't want you to miss out on what God's word has to say, and that is his desire is each one to give. That's what Second Corinthians chapter 16 says. He doesn't say, well, only if you're rich or only if you make this amount of money. 
And what can happen is, is that we can think, well, I don't make very much money, so I don't need to give to the Lord, or we have a difficult time giving to the Lord. That's between you and the Lord. So, but know this, that it is the Lord's desire that each one of us, that we give to Him, and that we invest in the kingdom of God. And don't miss out. What you give is up to you. But you give freely and willingly and cheerfully, as Second Corinthians chapter 9 tells us. And you be ones that know that God desires for us to give. And he promises blessing. And he desires for us to invest in the kingdom of God. So those are the principles of giving. And it very, this kind of reminded me, as he says, every man shall give as he is able. It just rang a bell with me with 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In verse 18, as we get back to chapter 16 here, Deuteronomy, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So here, when you go into the promised land, that within your gates and your cities, you're going to appoint judges. You're going to appoint those who are going to give just, just judgment. And so that's why the civil laws are being given here. In chapter 17, we'll see some of those. And, um, and they're going to be giving judgment. And so when they do, it's according to God's word. You're not to pervert justice. You're not to show partiality. You're not to take a bribe. And so I think this is a nice proverb here in verse 19. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. We need to remember that. Um, And it's very easy. How can we make application? You and I, perhaps, that we talk to somebody and, and woo, you know, we want to, Make sure we don't upset them. We, we want them to like us. And, you know, and so you know, make sure that you're giving the truth of God's word to them when you talk to them. When they ask or perhaps they ask counsel or uh, something that comes up in the conversation, make sure that you're being godly in your conversation. Make sure that you're being godly in your counsel that you're giving to them in God's word. Don't twist the words of righteousness. Don't become blinded. That you be one that you fear the Lord and you honor his word and you give that to other people because as you know that we do not help people unless we are giving them the truth of God's word. So here, you guys, as you're given this justice and you're hearing these cases, make sure that you don't pervert justice or show partiality or take a bribe. In verse 21, you shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which... You build for yourself to the Lord your God, and you shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. And so again, it's reminding them over and over and over and over and over and over, do not get involved in idol worship, setting up the sacred pillars, and what ended up happening? They ended up doing that. Chapter 17, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect for that which is an abomination to the Lord your God. And so... Here we see that as you give an animal uh, to the Lord as a sacrifice, uh, as an offering, that make sure it doesn't have a defect. Uh, make sure that it's, as we've gone through again, it, when you give the first 
fruits of your animal, uh, the firstborn that is, they were to give the first fruits of their grain. But the firstborn, uh, when you give the Passover to lamb, when you bring that sacrifice, uh, make sure that it's not a defect, a lame animal. Now we know that in Malachi, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and that was taken place 400 years before Jesus, after the, the uh, Babylonian captivity, that Zerubbabel and the rem- some of the remnants would come back and they would rebuild the temple and sacrifice and offering started up again. And in Malachi chapter 1, the Lord rebukes them because they were bringing the lame and sick animals for their offerings. In other words, they were going out there and they were saying in their animals, I've got to bring an offering. Well, that one's lame and sick and, and, and so um, it's going to die anyway. So I'll bring it to the Lord to offer and what the Lord was saying is, is that he didn't want the leftovers. And again, we've talked a little bit about this, but I think it's a powerful principle for us to look at when we give. And that's what a sacrifice is. It's giving. That's what an offering is, is giving of ourselves, giving of our resources, giving of our times, giving of our service to the Lord. So oftentimes the Lord gets what? Our leftovers. And I understand that we have lives and We have time commitments, we have jobs, we have businesses, we have children that we need to raise. But I pray that our devotion to the Lord and our service to the Lord and our giving to the Lord, our giving should be a result of our devotion to Him. But the Lord truly does get the first fruits. The Lord, each and every day, I want to give you the first fruits of my life. I want to start my day with you. And I desire, Lord, to, to give you the first fruits of my devotion and I desire to serve you and wherever you have me and that commitment I don't want to just give the Lord the leftovers I don't want to just be one that oh well you know what I guess I guess I'll go in and usher today you know I'd rather stay at home but but we would be ones that Lord you are a priority in my life and and that I have reason to rejoice and have thanksgiving and I want to give to you so, again, I know there are times that we may wake up and somehow devotions don't happen and they end up later on in the day and we're thinking, oh, you know, Pastor Jeff said it at first fruits of the day, you know, and I didn't do that. Out of the devotion, you give the Lord your very best and, and have a desire that, Lord, I just want to give to you of my heart, of my time, my service, and what you've called me to do and opportunities that you've given to me to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? That we just don't have a mindset of, well, maybe, Lord, I'll, I'll spend some time with you next week if i got any time left. Or maybe I'll serve you if I feel like it. But, you know, those kinds of things. The Lord desires for us to really give Him the first fruits, and it starts with our hearts. And so here they were given the leftovers. He says, I don't want it. And so verse 2, There is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or woman, who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones." And so we see that um, the Lord, again, talking about false worship and, and false 
um, things that not to get involved with. If anybody is, there was a harsh punishment for that. Now notice here a couple things. He's talking about astrology here. That he's talking about you know those who are looking at um, the moon and and the stars and the host of heavens. Um, it's very very popular in our society today. And when we get into chapter 18, we're going to see in the next chapter that the Lord's going to talk about avoiding occultic kinds of things. We need to be careful not to be involved in those things. But one thing that I want us to notice is that notice that false worship here that the Lord constantly refers to it as evil, as wicked. Even Paul the Apostle, again, that we saw when he was talking about those Judaizers that were coming in and telling the Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised in order to have a righteous standing before God, he called them evil workers. He said, beware of the evil workers. And of course, to the Galatian churches, he said that it's another gospel. But, but God calls that false doctrine, he calls false worship, and, and those things wicked and evil. And the reason is, is because he knows that it leads people astray, and eternity is at stake. And we don't want to do that. And he knows that when it begins to come in, a little bit of leaven, what? Leavens the whole lump, doesn't it? And it begins to spread. And that's exactly what happened to the nation. As they began, a generation after they came into the promised land, began to compromise, began to um, already begin to worship false idols. And, and they were hidden. And they it just began to spread and spread. And that's what happened is it spread throughout the whole nation. That's why the Lord is saying deal with this radically in the way that he is. Satan knows that deception can spread very, very quickly. And Satan is very, very good at deceiving. He's a, the father of lies, Jesus said. He's a master deceiver. He's one that can transform himself, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians as an angel of light, to make it look good and interesting and, and acceptable. But we need to filter everything through the Word of God. And, and we need to be careful that we don't get involved with those things that are false. And as you look at the false worship that they did, you go through the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel that we have gone through, you see that there was a mixture of, of truth and a mixture of that which is false. They were celebrating the Sabbath. They were celebrating some of the feasts. But they were doing it in a wrong way, in a false way. And they had a lot of mixture of other idols and things like that that were involved. So the Christian is told to be devoted to the Lord and the truth of God's word. And everything else you lay aside. So those are the warnings that are given here. Put away the evil from among you is what he says here um, in these verses. And in verse 6, um, as he talks about, who is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And the hands of the witnesses shall be first among, against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so you shall put away evil from among you. So again, concerning uh, the death penalty, we've gone over this, that it was based on the testimony of two or three witnesses, not just one, and it would be those witnesses that had to be involved in, in the execution and putting their hands, and then afterwards all the people of the community 
would do that. In verse 8, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall come to the priests and the Levites and to the judge there in those days and inquire of them. They shall pronounce among you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously will not heed the priest who stands to minister before the Lord your God or the judge. That man shall die, so he shall put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously, or that is with the rebellious spirit. So here's the thing. If the judges of a community couldn't come to a judgment, they would then go to the Levites, to the priests, and they will give the judgment. And whatever they tell you to carry out, you had to do what they told you to do. They, you had to carry it that sentence. You didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And again, there were serious consequences if the one who, who did act presumptuously did not heed the priest, and he was to then be put away. And so here, this was a higher court, if you would. Now, the application that we can make, I think, for us tonight is simply this, that if you have something, a problem, circumstance, question, whatever it is, and you, you're wondering, I need counsel. I need counsel from somebody. And, um, and you go to somebody, a mature brother or sister in the Lord, a leader in the church. You come to me as a pastor. When you are shown the Word of God, and the Word of God shows you clearly what it is that you are to do in that circumstance, don't ignore it. Don't say, well, that's not going to work for me. Or, uh, I don't agree with that. Or I think I'll go another direction, to the right or to the left. Because you'll end up experiencing serious repercussions and negative consequences if you do. Because God's word is true and his ways are good. And so take what the word of God has to say, that truth applied to you and apply it in your life, but don't ignore it. And I think all of us, a lot of us, have experienced that frustration when we talk to a brother and sister that's you know, struggling or they have a question, we give them clearly what the Word of God has to say. This is what God desires for you. This is what the truth has given to you. And they say, ah, that doesn't work for me. Yeah, it will work for you. As you just yield to the Lord and trust in Him and look to Him. But don't be presumptuous. or just a rebellious spirit. And so here, uh, again, these guidelines given when they go into the land, and then verse 14, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you, and you shall not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Interesting, the Lord knows that in about 400 years from this point that they're going to come and they're going to ask for a king. And that's what would happen. 
After the days of the judges, the days of the judges will go into the book of Joshua. Then after Joshua, the days of the judges lasted about 250 years to 300 years. And it would be Samuel, the last of the judges. It would be the people that would come to Samuel and they would say to him, Samuel, we don't want your sons ruling over us. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king to rule over us. Samuel was broken hearted. He went to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Now, why did the Lord say that? They were Israel, which means governed by God. That's why God was giving them this covenant and these laws and how to govern themselves. He wanted to be their king, governed by God. And when the other nations saw that they were submitted to the Lord, how the Lord was blessing them, protecting them, making them strong, that they would then turn and say, hey, this God that you have is the true and living God. But here they come to Samuel and they say, we want to be like the other nations. And the Lord said, they've rejected me. Because I want to be their king. I want to govern over them. So the Lord's looking down 400 years to when they're going to ask for a king. And of course, Saul would be the first king. And then after Saul would be David. And after David would be Solomon. And then after Solomon, Rehoboam. And then after Rehoboam, the nations would split in the, in the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But we do know that here, guidelines are given to them. Guidelines are given to them that you shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then verse 16, But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, You shall not return to that way again. Neither shall you multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now think about it. David multiplied wives, didn't he? He disobeyed the commandment of God. Solomon, who was reigning during the height of Israel's prosperity and peace and power, great riches and prosperity, what did he do? We talk about the wisdom of Solomon, and Solomon did start out very, very well. When his first of his reign, the Lord comes to Solomon and says, Solomon, what is it that you want? I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, this is what I want. I, I this is way over my head being a king and I don't know my going in and going out and this is a great people Lord give me wisdom and the Lord was pleased with that because Solomon you did not ask for anything for yourself I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to bless you and the Lord did bless him and we hear about the wisdom of Solomon that it came from all over the Queen of Sheba to hear his wisdom and he was a very intelligent individual, extremely wealthy. What did Solomon do? He multiplied wives. 300 wives, 700 concubines. And here the Lord, why don't you multiply wives? Lest they turn your heart away. And that's what happened with Solomon. It was his wives that were foreign wives that turned his heart away, and he began to burn incense to the idols that they were worshiping, he even built temples to them. He even built a temple to Moloch. Moloch was that god that they sacrificed their children on the arms of Moloch. <laughs> it wasn't very wise, were you, Solomon? What else did he do? He multiplied horses. You can go to Israel today, and those of us who have been to Israel, and just a little side note, I'm getting anxious to go back, so I think we're going to be planning a trip to Israel. We'll keep you updated on that. So save your pennies, your dollars. But when we go to Israel, we'll go to Megiddo, and we'll see one of the remains of 
of Solomon's stables where they believe he had 400 horses. That was just one place. They had several of these stables. So 400 horses, that would be like having a warehouse full of 400 luxury cars. He was not to multiply wives. He did horses. He wasn't to multiply greatly silver and gold. And during Solomon's reign, silver was like rocks in Jerusalem. So he didn't keep the commandments of the Lord. And we see that it caught up with Solomon. The reason I'm mentioning that is because we can look at some of the, the smallest of things and we think, well, that doesn't really apply to me. And I'm doing okay. I mean, look, I'm doing fine. I'm prospering. And there's peace in my life right now. And I'll just ignore it. You know, I was reading in chapter 22, studying the head for the next couple of weeks, and it has a little thing there about if you find a nest with the bird and got eggs, then you're to take care of it. Put that nest aside so the bird can, you know, hatch the eggs. And you think, oh, what's the big deal about that? But the Lord says that so that your land may prosper. You guys, you never want to even take what you think is the, the littlest of the commands or the littlest of what God tells us and ignore it. And that's what Solomon did. So Solomon, who had the wisdom of God, here's wisdom. It's not just knowing what God's word says, but having it worked out in your life. He got sloppy. And he multiplied wives that would lead his heart away, and it had serious consequences for the nation. He multiplied horses, and he multiplied greatly silver and gold. But also here, notice, and we'll finish with this, in verses 18 through 20. It also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, and he shall write for himself a copy of the law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and to be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right and or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, and he and his children in the midst of Israel. So what the king was supposed to do was not only to read the law and, and the word of God, but he was to write for himself a copy of the law in a book. A lot of the kings didn't do that. You know, upstairs in one of the offices, back offices, have a filing cabinet about that tall with all these drawers, and they're all full of notes from the last 13 years of all the books of the Bible that we've gone through. And some of the guys, some of the other Calvary guys kind of egg me on a little bit because I handwrite my notes. I like to handwrite my notes. I, I don't like to type. That's just me. But one of the things I got that from was here. And that's just me. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with typing your notes, but you can see, see I handwrite my notes. And sometimes people say, hey, man, get it together and get up, you know, to the latest technology. I like to because there's something that does something. In my notes, I'll write out the verses. And there's just something for me that helps me remember that. And I think that's why the Lord said for the king to write out the law so that he can remember it. And a lot of you do the same thing, don't you? You do it with little note cards. You write out verses, and I have people come and tell me, and they say, my note cards, and I'll go over them in the morning, and I'll go over them at night, and I'm remembering. There's just something, when you write it out, you remember it, don't you? 
It's like if you write out a recipe, you kind of remember what that recipe is. If you write out, you know, instructions, you can kind of remember. I get more forgetful, but I just, I write those verses down, and it helps me remember them. So that's why a filing cabinet just full of, of, of just notes. But it's also writing down these verses, and I, I write it down. It takes time, but I do it so I can remember it. And, and there's just something in my mind. And many of you, our children do it. They'll write out verses and they'll stick it on the refrigerator. I think that's a good practice to not only read the Word, but if you have time, make note cards of the Word of God. You know, put them in in your home. And, um, you know, put them up, write it down, and it just kind of sticks with you. And that's what they were to do. Well, I was going to go into chapter 18, but we'll stop there. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these principles that are here and Um, Lord, a a valuable book, how we desire to know your word, how we desire to live your word. And again, as we're reminded that as we do read your word and remember it, that, Lord, that we would be ones, that, Lord, our desire is, is that we would live it as well. Father, I pray our hearts would be hearts of joy and thanksgiving, that, Lord, that we would be ones that we desire to give you the first fruits of our lives, of our hearts, more than anything. That right now, as we just set our hearts and just spending a few minutes in worshiping, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is anxious, Lord, that right now, they, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, they would give it to you, and that you would give them the peace of God that passes understanding, that you would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If anybody here that, Lord, just needs a special touch from you, Maybe it's been difficult struggles, maybe confusion. And Lord, that you would just minister to your people right now, knowing that we have your promises, knowing that you desire to have us leave this place being built up and comforted and edified. I pray for those who, who desire to, to just be up, lifted up in, in prayer and, and come for prayer, that they would do so, that nothing would hinder them. That the enemy right now wouldn't rob anybody of coming up for prayer. or Lord, but we would be ones that we know that you are pleased when we come and cast our cares upon you. So, Father, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.